Albert Einstein's wisdom and genius revolutionized the way mankind looks at the universe, and the impact of his discoveries transformed modern society. In this class, we talk about the complex relationship between Albert Einstein and his Judaism. As always, please feel free to leave us a comment or ask a question, and do us a favor and please like and share this podcast. Welcome to the Jewish History Podcast. I'm Rabbi Nachum Math. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining. It's good to see you all, and welcome to Einstein's Jewish Universe. Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Everyone have a great evening. Um, a uh, word of note, I am not a physicist. This won't be a lecture on physics. Don't worry if you didn't bring your calculators, pens, or pencils. Don't worry about that. I'm not a physicist. However, my dad of blessed memory was a physicist. So this, this class is dedicated in his honor and his memory. He would have been very proud of a class like this. He was uh, My dad was a, a brilliant person who actually understood you know, some of the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight. So um, Albert Einstein's Jewish Universe. The late Paul Johnson, who just passed away a few months ago, he, um, in the beginning of his amazing book called Modern Times, the book begins, the modern world began on May 29th, 1919, when photographs of a solar eclipse taken on the island, island of Principe off the West Africa and Sobral in Brazil confirmed the truth of a new theory of the universe. I always love the introduction of the book. It's like a definitive. The modern world began on March 19th on some remote island off of the West African coast. What happened that day? Well, we're going to get there. It's interesting that the Times person of the century was Albert Einstein. It says a lot of the type of person that he was and his contribution. And that Paul Johnson, when discussing when modern times begins, it begins on March 9th, on whenever it was, in 1919, with the solar eclipse, which is, we're going to see is going to have some direct Einstein connections. Tonight's class, we're going to do a brief biography of Albert Einstein. We'll give a real layman, and by layman, I mean a real layman's understanding of some of his major contributions um, to the world of physics and science. We'll look at his Jewish connections to the world around him. And time permitting, my what I anticipate the most is we're going to have a discussion on some Torah perspectives, some Jewish perspectives um, on his major discoveries. Einstein is born in March 14, 1897, in Germany, town of Ulm, I believe in Ulm, Germany. A couple months ago, we gave a discussion about a great rabbi who was living uh, right as Einstein dies, Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who dies in 1888, and his role in Germany and what he was trying to do and what German Jewish life looked like at the time. Briefly, German Jewish life in the second half of the 18th of the 19th century was a train wreck. Jews had in what now the very very different to what was going on in eastern in eastern europe but jews in western europe particularly in germany uh had slowly begun to be, been emancipated first with frederick the great and then with the unification of of germany and eventually jews did receive their emancipation became citizens and as that's emerging the great reform movement of the of the german reform jewish reform movement emerges and jews 
very, very quickly assimilated so that by the time Einstein is born in 1879, just a small, small fraction of Jews in Germany are actually still observant. They are very, very quickly assimilating, um, kind of dissolving into German society. And the vibrancy of Jewish life was really crashing and burning. Einstein did not grow up, as we're going to see, you know, particularly connected to his Judaism. That's a picture of Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch, who was kind of on, on an island trying to still promote and do as much as he could to preserve, you know, the ancient Jewish messages and trying to really reinvigorate Torah life in Germany. He's born to, and again, if you can't see the, the, the slides, don't worry about it. It's not that, that interesting. It just makes things more colorful. He's born in 1879 to Paulina and Herman. Herman, his father, was an engineer, um, an engineer slash entrepreneur. He liked tinkering in electricity, and they would bounce around from town to town uh, for really much of Einstein's youth. Um, different areas in Central and Western uh, Europe, Germany. He would live in Munich. He would live in, in, in a couple different towns. Um, he had one sister, his sister Maya, who he had a, a very deep relationship with, was his doting sister um, Maya. Urban legend, Einstein didn't learn how to talk till he was 15. Einstein failed a math course in elementary school. How cool would those stories be if they were true? Sadly, they're not. Truths aren't, those stories are not true. Einstein is a little slightly delayed speaking. He didn't start speaking till he was two, which is not that unusual. It was a little developmentally delayed. And historians do point out he had, I never heard of this word, who are our speech therapists. He had a small echolalia. Does anyone know what an echolalia? He liked to repeat words. He would repeat words to himself. Through his whole life, he would just constantly repeat himself. But again, not a major developmental anything. He was a bright student. He did just fine in elementary school. He did just fine in high school. He never failed in math. He wasn't the best student, but yeah, those, those stories are incorrect. Um, one of the classic stories that is a true story is when Einstein was maybe nine years old. Pardon me one second. When give me one second over here. There we go. When Einstein was roughly nine years old, he was sick in bed one day with a cold. And his dad, in order to you know help the time go by, gave him a compass. You know, nowadays for those kids in the room, a compass is not an app on your on your iPhone. A compass is a little circular device that tells you where the magnetic north pole is you know, based on magnets. And Einstein was mesmerized, mystified by the magical powers, you know, of the compass. And he would write later on in his life, he said, I can still remember, at least I believe I can remember, that this experience made a deep and lasting impression on me. He wrote on one of the many occasions he recounted the incident, something deeply hidden had to be behind things. Einstein, although he... He may have been a little bit developmentally delayed, a little bit, and he just, he was fascinated by the world around him. He had such a, a, a zeal and such a curiosity of the world around him. And, you know, something like the compass and the mystical, magical, mystifying elements of the compass, you know, really just piqued his curiosity. Now, people, you know, because Einstein is, is uh, you know, the egghead, and there he is as a little boy. Um, 
Einstein, interesting, he did growing up as a child and things that he would do throughout his life. Although, yes, he was a brilliant scientist and we like to think of him as like an egghead. And, you know, he, he had, as I mentioned, a real zeal for life. He loved music. His real passion was playing the violin. He was actually very, very talented on the violin. And what's interesting is that, and again, fast forwarding to a little bit later in his life, the violin was not, was not a diversion for him. It wasn't like a diversion, like, oh, I need an outlet. He actually sought inspiration from his music. And he would write, and he would tell over, um, his son would actually tell over many a time, you know, Einstein would be working on an equation, dealing with some kind of uh, transformation, would be stuck, and he would, couldn't figure out the problem. So he would go and grab his violin, you know, play his violin, middle of a, he loved Mozart, middle of Mozart, he'd be like, I got it. And he would go, you know, run back to his office and scribble down the equation. He saw within music a certain, a certain uh, inspiration. He saw a certain connection with the world around him. He also, interestingly, I thought this was interesting. He loved sailing. He loved boats. And throughout his whole life, he loved, as a matter of fact, later on in life, when he was moved to the United States, he got himself a little sailboat. And I think he, he did speak Yiddish or German. He named his boat Tinuf. I don't know what Tinuf means. Tinuf means like a piece of junk in Yiddish. So that's the name of his boat. I thought that was kind of cute. When he was about nine years old, he, as I mentioned, Einstein grew up completely unreligious. His parents were totally disconnected from Judaism. They didn't go to synagogue. They didn't go to, they were totally removed from their Judaism. They understood and knew that they were Jewish, but their Jewish connection was very, very, very minimal. Einstein did not go to a Jewish school. As a matter of fact, his parents sent him to an elementary school, sent him to a Catholic school, which he thought was just fine. When Einstein was about nine years old, it's unclear what happened, but all of a sudden he got like a, a religious connection. And for a little bit of time, he became devout as a child. And he would observe the Shabbos. He kept Shabbos. He, his sister would write, he drove us crazy keeping kosher. You know, and he did all these rituals. He like for a little bit of time, obviously in a very childish way, in a, in a sense, he was only nine years old. He didn't really understand what he was doing, but there was a very short period in his life where he did have this flash of Jewish connection. The story goes, it's not super clear what caused him to drift away, but his parents, when he was a little bit older, um, invited a local, you know, 20 something year old a kid to join them for dinner, din dinners regularly. His name was Max Talmud, who changed his name to Max Talmi. And this Max Talmud would, was actually a major influence in Einstein's life. Um, and he was the one who first introduced Einstein to, you know, physics. And he gave him all sorts of, you know, like little magazines and things like that. And he was, he would like, like teach and tutor Einstein informally. He said very quickly, you know, the, the student, the pupil became the teacher very quickly. He like realized I couldn't, you know, keep up with him. And, um, but that relationship, it does seem that this Max Talmud, this fellow did influence Isaac kind of, a, uh, Einstein, pardon me. He had influenced Einstein to sort of abandon his connection to his Judaism. And uh, that little period, that short little period in Einstein's life, where he actually was connected, um, at least a religious connection to his Judaism, was very short-lived. At the age of 16, he... Oh, let's go back. At the age of 16, 
he enrolls in college as kind of like a preparatory school. It was called, uh, it, it, its name is different today, it still exists. He kept on referring to it as the Zurich Polytechnic. It's in Zurich in, in, uh, in Switzerland. He, he went there for, to, for his schooling. Um, now it's called like the Zurich ETH or something like that. He would always refer to it as the Zurich Polytechnic. Um, Einstein throughout his life, even as early as a, as a teenager, hated authority. He was, had an aversion to authority, and that will, would be and was a defined, this was not a minor part of his life. This was a defining feature of Einstein's personality and a defining feature, as we will see, of his science was that he had a disdain, a natural repulsion to authority. <laughs> Einstein was a rebel. You know, go rebels. Einstein absolutely had a rebellious streak. As a matter of fact, he had such a disdain. Now, coming from a, you know, as a German, Germans are very into their structure and order and hierarchy. And this comes beneath that, which goes beneath that. Einstein naturally was headed on a collision course with German ideology. As a matter of fact, when he was 16 years old, he walks in, into, the, into the German um, embassy and he renounced his German citizenship when he was 16 years old, something that he would do again, as we'll see shortly. Although the story of Einstein failing math isn't true, Jean Paré ran an experimental lab at the Polytechnic, uh, at the Zurich Polytechnic. Einstein was not, interestingly, he was not a, um, he was not really, he didn't like labs. He was not a hands-on uh, physicist. He was very much a theoretical physicist. He loved using his mind. He couldn't deal with the lab. He was actually pretty lousy with applied science. And one day in Jean Perret's cla experimental class, he blew up a beaker that and sent it, you know, created an explosion, sent Einstein, had to get stitches and uh, couldn't play his violin for two weeks. And although Einstein never failed math and he did speak on time, Einstein was flunked in college in physics. <laughs> Amazing story. That's an amazing story for all you kids who get bad grades. Even Einstein failed physics. While he was in, in Zurich at the Polytechnic, there was one woman in his class. It was the early 1900s. Women tended not to go to university. There was only one woman in his class. Her name was, was Maleva Marich. And immediately they, they began an attraction. And they became a couple very quickly. Interestingly, is again, is a sort of a highlight of Einstein's Jewishness. Uh, Marich was not Jewish. She was a, she was a, a Swab, I think, something. She was definitely not Jewish. And um, Einstein's parents, Einstein's parents hated her, but not because she wasn't Jewish. They just found her annoying. Um, but they didn't care about the fact that she was, that she wasn't Jewish. She was indeed, she was brilliant. Um, and Early on, you see their letters that they wrote back to one another. It, it's like, it's funny reading Einstein's love letters. They're absolutely amazing. They're like, I can't wait to see you and we can discuss some ridiculous concept. I don't even know what he's talking about. Like, I guess that's how two physics, you know, lovers, how they like write to one to another. It's really kind of charming. Einstein graduates Zurich Polytechnic in 1900. Interesting is uh, Maleva never graduated. She never, she was never, never, never able to pass her. Um, um, her exam. In 1901, they weren't married and they had a child out of wedlock, which was very taboo in those days. 
Um, and they would eventually give her up. Her name was Lacerel. They would give her up for adoption. And what's remarkable is she was lost to history. She was discovered by historians in 1990-something when Einstein's personal papers were opened. And they found, like, they had a daughter who was put up to adoption. No one knew about her. Since then, historians, since I think it was like 96, have tried searching what happened to this, this girl, this baby, Lucero, what happened to her? We don't know. We think the last we see of her is when she's two or three years old, she gets very sick. So very likely she died or she got adopted somewhere. We just, we, we don't know. Many children, many people would come forward and say, I'm a, I was Einstein's child. Interestingly, Einstein like never like rejected. That's impossible. He never said that because it, it was a possibility, but she was kind of, Einstein deliberately deleted her from history. Like all of, all of his papers and uh, Marich's papers and their letters from those few years or there's a big gap in their in their storylines. They don't exist. Einstein graduates college and can't find a job. He tried even teaching in high schools. They wouldn't accept him. He eventually, his friend Marcel Grossman, who we'll talk about in a moment, he eventually finds, gets a job as a Swiss patent clerk, technical expert, class three. And that's where he finds his job. Um, and his office. That's him. That's a picture of him at the patent office. His office overlooks the Bern, it was in Bern, the Bern clock tower, which he would see every day. And people are into this psychological stuff, used to love talking about it, as we're going to see, obviously, one of Einstein's major contributions to, to science is going to be his theory of relativity and time and clocks. And Einstein would always write in all of his experiments, he would talk about clocks and synchronizing clocks. Einstein's window looked at the burn clock, which is a historical landmark, and he would receive, in the patent office, many, many patents of people trying to synchronize clocks. We all, right, your, your clock is all synchronized with Apple up in the sky somewhere, right? Back then, even not so long ago, for all of us ancient people, when we were growing up, right, synchronizing your watches was a thing, right? You had to listen to the radio, and you hit the, when they hit the beep, and you would turn your, right? So back then they were, they were, it was, there were different inventions. How would really to make the trains run on time? That was really the problem is you know, the train, your train leaves at 834. How do you know what, when is 834? So there were many inventions that would actually pass Einstein's desk on, on time synchronizing. And, um, you know, people have found that fascinating. Einstein, although he was aloof by nature and he was a distracted type of person, Einstein uh, contrary to what many people believe, he was able to develop and did develop throughout his whole life very deep relationships and friendships. Um, when he was in Bern during this time, he, him and these are two important people in history. That's that's uh, Maurice Salavine on the left. Again, if you can't see it, don't worry. And Conrad Habich, who we'll read about in just a moment. Um, they formed the Olympia Academy. This is their own private academy, kind of like revolting against everyone. They started their own little academy and they had their own little curriculum. And really throughout his life, he really did have very deep friendships. Um, you know, Michaela Besso would be one of his closest, closest friends. Um, so he, he, he was able and did uh, develop deep relationships. Um, Marich would have a child again in 1903. They would have two children together. Hans Albert, Albert Jr., but they used to call him Hans Albert. Uh, was his older son, and then Edward, they used to call him Tete, which I believe is German for like the teeth, the little one, um, uh, a couple years younger. 
think that's Edward. And that's, that's Einstein in 1905. So here you have Einstein. Albert Einstein is a 25-year-old anonymous pat patent clerk working for the Swiss Patent Office, 25 years old, a totally anonymous to the world. And in 1905 would be the year they called the Annus Maravillis, I don't know, in these Latin words, it means the miracle year. A person who's working full-time for a patent, you know, in a patent office, on his spare time, over the course of just a few months, would issue four papers that would absolutely change the course of humanity. And one of the most charming letters ever written um, by a scientist, you know, for history, it's one of the most charming, amazing letters. It's just absolutely remarkable. And if it's okay with you, I'm going to read it. This is a letter that he writes to Conrad Hobbitch. He writes the following. Dear Hobbitch, such a solemn air of silence has, this, has descended between us that I almost feel as if I am committing a sacrilege when I break it now with some inconsequential babble. Now, this inconsequential babble would revolutionize the history of mankind. <laughs> So what are you up to, you frozen whale, you smoke-dried canned piece of soul? Why have you not sent me your dissertation? Don't you know that I am the, I'm one of the one and a half fellows who would read it with interest and pleasure, you wretched man? I promise you four papers in return. Is that just like the most marvelous, charming introduction? He says, you know, why haven't you sent me your dissertation, you frozen whale? I'll send you four papers in return. And this is his outline of what these small four papers of inconsequential babble. The first deals with radiation and energy properties of light and is very revolutionary, as you will see if you send me your work first. <laughs> revolutionary would be an understatement. Why, uh, and we'll talk about it maybe a little bit later in the, in the evening, but Einstein's first great paper of 1904 would basically set in motion quantum mechanics. He basically argued that light exists both as a wave and as a particle. If you don't know what that means, don't worry. But that's really the that's really the starting point, the birth point of modern day quantum mechanics. The second paper is a determination of the true size of atoms. The third paper provides uh, the third proves that bodies on the order of magnitude of one one thousandth of a millimeter suspended in liquids must already perform an observable random motion that is produced by thermal motion. Such mo movement of suspended bo suspended bodies has actually been observed by physio by physicists who call it Brownian molecular motion. In those second and third papers, basically what Einstein did was he explained a, a physical phenomenon known as Brownian motion, which essentially he proved that atoms were real things. Up until that point, physicists weren't so con convinced that, you know, we all learned, if you, all, you, you took a basic science class, chemistry, you learn about atoms. Atoms were not an accepted part of science. Einstein in his second and third papers inconsequential babble, basically prove that atoms do exist. The fourth paper is only a rough draft at this point, and it is an electrodynamics of moving bodies and employs a modification of the theory of space and time. With that fourth little paper, he would upend Newtonian physics, develop special relativity, and change the course of humanity, inconsequential babble. Later that year, just a few months later, he would, uh, he would add a fifth paper where he would basically prove that based on theory of relativity, which again, I'm not going to, we might get to, into time permitting, we'll give a, maybe a briefer idea, but the theory of relativity Einstein basically proved is that although we think and we see the world and time being a fixed objective standard, he would basically argue that time as well as space are relative. It depends how fast you're moving. 
something that looks one foot to me will look much, much smaller uh, or much, much, much larger to someone who's moving towards the speed of light. An hour to me will seem, you know, much, much shorter to someone who's moving towards the speed of light. Totally revolutionized the way the world works. A derivative of that special theory of relativity would be a little equation, which is the most famous equation in all of science. E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared. Inconsequential babble. He publishes these papers, and they actually do get published in a couple of scientific journals. And his sister would write, his sister Maya would write, an icy silence followed the publication. And that's not really true, although it's, there's a lot of truth to that. Einstein's four papers, which really did change the way the science and physicists look at the universe, didn't immediately, you know, catch hold. It would take a while, as we'll see. However, there were some significant of the most influential scientists at the time, particularly Max Planck, who was probably one of the most um, revered physicists of the day, who did catch notice of this fellow. And it's like, who is this guy? And there are these, again, these remarkable stories of how like the world's leading scientists, you know, would go to Bern to try to find who is this Einstein guy. And they're like, okay, he's in a patent office. They would go into this patent office and they're like, they can't find him. And they're like, not that guy. That guy can't be the guy who wrote those papers. And indeed it was him. Interestingly, the second paper, the paper on Brownian motion, the, the paper that actually argued that atoms really exist, that would finally earn him a doctorate. When he, when he writes these four papers, which changed the world, he wasn't, again, he wasn't a teacher. He wasn't a professor. He wasn't a doctor. He did this in his spare time. Is the funniest thing. He had a little desk and his boss, who's a patent clerk, who was a very forgiving boss. And this, this boss actually is responsible for a lot of world history. Einstein got his, was supposed to be working eight hour days. He was able to get the job done in two hours. And for the rest of the six hours, he would keep, he'd call it his physics department which was a drawer in his desk where he kept all his papers. That was his physics department. And his boss was the kind of guy who said he didn't care. As long as he got the job done, you want to spend six hours a day goofing off, you know, redefining the history, you know, science, go for it. Just make sure you get those patents all worked out. After, by 1909, a couple of years after, you know, he's still working as a patent clerk. By 1909, he was offered a couple of professor jobs in universities. And for the next five years, he would bounce around from colleges. He would go back to the Zurich Polytechnic. He would go to the University of Prague at one point. Interesting, when he applied for the University of, of Prague, he had to go ahead and mark off what your religion was. What did Einstein write? write? He wrote none. Interesting. That was unacceptable. The only thing worse than being a Jew was being an atheist. So he ended up changing it and wrote mosaic. He would bounce around by eventually by 1913, he was admitted to the Prussian Academy of the Sciences, which was kind of a still is, I believe it still exists, a scientific kind of a, a fraternity um, where, where by, by already by, not, by then, people were understood in the scientific world that he was a significant person. Special relativity basically it's called special relativity because special relativity basically argues that as you go faster, as you if, as you travel faster towards the speed of light, space and time 
change. Einstein argues in, this, in, the, in the theory of special relativity that if you really think about it, one of the things that really spooked him and something that spooked Galileo similarly is if I'm on an airplane and you're on land, who's moving? And the answer is, Einstein argued, there's no such thing. Galileo really argued, there's no such thing as objective movement. You can only argue that we are moving relative to one another. But who's moving, us or Venus? Right? Venus is moving and we're moving. You know, we're both in, but you can't say one is in motion and one's stationary. That's what Einstein really argued in his special theory of relativity, that when you have two objects in motion, they are, you can only view them as relative to one another. And Einstein really applied that to light as well. What was a little tricky to Einstein is that, yes, in the special case of someone traveling at a uniform speed in a straight line, his theory of special relativity worked. It's harder to make that argument when you're rotating or when you're accelerating. It's hard to say that I'm not objectively the one in motion. That was something that got him thinking. But really what got Einstein after these four papers, what really got him troubled is he came up one day. The story goes like this. This is the story. It's not true. The New York Times actually published the story. The New York Times says the story. He's one day he's looking out of his, out of his office at that, at that clock tower. And there was a painter painting the clock tower. And the painter fell out of the, fell out of the window. And as the painter was falling, Einstein had the following, came up with the following eureka moment. It's not true. Although he does talk about, as we're going to see in a second, falling people, these were hypothetical. Einstein would call this, is, uh, and I should mention, by the way, the book on Einstein's biography is this book, Walter Isaacson's uh, Biography of Einstein. If you want to read one book on Einstein, this is the book. There are many very good Einstein biographies, but this is certainly the best one. Um, and um, Isaacson argues, he says, he says, it's hard to imagine that Einstein who would call this eureka moment, who would call it the happiest moment of his life. It's hard to imagine if he saw someone falling out of a window, <laughs> that that would be the happiest moment of his life. Um, he envisioned, envisioned the following thing. It's an interesting thought experiment. Oh, we'll get to that in a moment. It's an interesting thought experiment. Imagine you are in an elevator. There's no windows. You can't see what's going on. What's going on. You can't see the world around you. And you're in an elevator going up. You drop a quarter, what happens? It falls to the floor. You raise your arm and you lower it and you're experiencing acceleration. Or, or really you're, 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 well, take that back. Let's say the, the elevator, pardon me, elevator. you're in a box, an elevator that's not moving, an elevator that's stationary. You drop a quarter and it falls, right? You're experiencing gravity. Gravitation is pulling the quarter down, your arm, you're, you're able to let, raise yourself up because you're in a box and you're experiencing gravitation. He was bothered, freaked out, actually, spooked by the following question. Imagine you were in outer space in that same box. So what would happen? You drop a quarter and it would start floating, right? You would start floating. But imagine outside of the box, there are no windows in that box. But outside of that box, there's a hook. And the hook is attached to a cord. And the cord is pulling that box at a uniform pace. And at the right speed. And you take out a quarter and you drop it. What would happen? It would fall. And you can mimic by accelerating that box in an elevator in outer space where there's no gravity, you can essentially mimic gravity. Einstein was spooked by the following issue. If you were inside one of these boxes, 
Is there any kind of scientific experiment that you could possibly do that would tell you, help you determine, am I in a box that's stationary and I'm, I'm feeling the effects of gravity? Or am I in a box that's not exper exper experiencing gravity? I'm experiencing acceleration. Einstein had a very deep drive to see uniformity in the world, in the universe. And it spooked him when there were two separate phenomena, gravity and acceleration, that looked exactly the same. There is not a single scientific experiment that you could possibly run to tell you, are you experiencing gravity or acceleration? That freaked him out. And he would spend the next five years trying to figure out what is the equivalence between gravity and acceleration? Einstein had a, had a hunch. He had a, a hunch that we think, and we're, we're used to the universe having, you know, three dimensions. You think like an X, Y, Z axis. Think, right? In your math, three dimensions. Einstein envisioned, what if there is a fourth dimension? What if there's a fourth dimension to the universe that we can't really perceive? And it's actually what he would call space-time. As he mentioned in, in his, that's why it's, this would be a, a build-off of special relativity. Special relativity basically argues that space and time, although there's a connection to them, but they change. But he wondered if the universe actually had a fourth dimension. And if that fourth dimension, he argued, he said, he would always give the following analogy. He says, imagine you're a beetle. And you're walking on a curved leaf, but you're a blind beetle. And you're walking on a curved beef, a, a, current, a curved leaf. You would experience what you think is walking straight, when in reality you are actually walking in a curve. And Einstein basically wondered: is if there is a fourth dimension called space-time that we don't really perceive. We're like that blind beetle. And that space-time, this fourth dimension, is curved. And if we do the calculus and the math on this curvature of this fourth dimension, which we can't experience, we'll actually, actually see that gravity is just the same thing as acceleration. Movement and gravity are one of the same. That was Einstein's theory. Did everyone understand it? If you did, you just got general theory of relativity. The beauty of that theory is, is it's a, ge a general theory. It explains all acceleration, even acceleration in a, in a, a, you know, when you're not at a uniform speed, even rotation, even movement, it would explain all of acceleration. And he had this theory and he spent the next five years working on it. And he realized there are really two ways of figuring it out. Number one would be to wait for a solar eclipse. Why a solar eclipse? One of the offshoots of this theory was that gravity should bend light. And the only way to test if gravity bends light, and again, exactly know what this means, but if gravity would bend light, would be if there was an eclipse. And what we would be able to do is we would be able to see, does the light from a star behind the sun, does it get bent by the eclipse? The problem with why you need an eclipse is a star behind the sun is not visible because the light of the sun washes out the light coming from that distant star. But during an eclipse, where the sun for a moment is darkened, you can see the light coming from behind the sun. And if that light gets bent from where we think that star ought to be, if it's a little bit displaced, it would prove that the gravity of the sun is bending light, which would prove Einstein's theory. 
The next solar eclipse which was to occur would be in the Crimea in Russia in August 21st, 1914. And it was going to be measured by a guy named Erwin Freundlich, a Berlin astronomer. Now, is it a good idea to be a Berlin astronomer in Russia in August of 1914, carrying all sorts of weird optical equipment? Not a great idea. Uh, you know, World War I broke out three weeks earlier, and this poor fellow got thrown in prison for quite a while, and the, the experiment was never able to be taken, you know, wasn't able to be carried out. That was actually a blessing, because at this point, Einstein's math had not yet been complete. And had they actually been able to gather the calculations, it would have disproven Einstein. Einstein would spend the next few years hammering out the mathematical. He realized the way to prove this general theory of relativity would require tremendous math. Problem was that Einstein, interestingly, although he was brilliant, he wasn't a brilliant mathematician. He needed his friend, Marcel Grossman, to help him come up with the math. And in November of 1919, he came up with this simple equation, which is the general theory of relativity. He was able to prove mathematically using very advanced math that indeed that whole theory that, that there is an equivalence between acceleration, gravitation, it's all the one thing. There's four um, dimensions of the universe and gravity is just a bending of space-time. It all works out mathematically over there. And that he comes out in, in, in November of 1914 and it changes the world. In 1919 would be the next eclipse, would be in 1919, and a British, shortly after the war, and a British astronomer named Arthur Edinburgh traveled, if you remember, to that place, Principe, uh, you know, off of the coast of South Africa. They, he took, this is one of those pictures, these little dots over here are supposedly, we think, those are like his indications of where the stars were supposed to be, and indeed it showed that those stars, whatever those were supposed to be, were 1.7 arc second, seconds off from where they should have, be, should have been, and it confirmed Einstein's theory of general relativity, and it was proven right. Interestingly, we stopped the story a day, you know, whatever it was, May 28th, the day before these experiments, Einstein was a fairly anonymous person. In the world of physics, he was well known. But outside of that, no one knew of him. After his general theory of relativity, which changed the cosmos, he became a rock star, an international rock star. He was widely popular. Everyone celebrated him. The theory thinking goes is that it was interesting. It's here you have a German Jewish scientist who has a theory of the universe being proven by a British guy out in South Africa after the world had just experienced the horrors of World War I. They kind of needed an inspiring story. And Einstein looked the part also. One of the great questions is, would Einstein have been the rock star that he was had he not had that wild halo of hair? Had he not been that charming, amusing, interesting fellow? It's hard to know. As this is all happening, as World War I is crashing around him, as he's literally developing the general theory of relativity, his marriage with uh, Marich fell apart. Hard to know exactly what happened. She probably, Einstein was aloof and was distant and probably was a difficult Person have, he was a very charming, loving person, but may have been a difficult husband. And marriage certainly suffered from depression, and their marriage fell apart, and they did get divorced. Isaac uh, Einstein, I keep on saying Isaac because I think of Isaac Sin. Einstein, I apologize. Einstein, while at, during his separation before his divorce, met his cousin. It's actually his cousin on both sides 
named Elsa Einstein, who had recently been widowed. And they fell in love. And after his divorce, Einstein remarried Elsa Einstein. And they actually would live, you know, for they, they got remarried and they would live together for several decades. They actually, from all accounts, had a very happy marriage. That's him in the Grand Canyon. That's him in his Berlin study. That's his house in Berlin. Anyone know who that is for 10 points? Madame Curie. It's very interesting. Um, okay. Einstein, as this is all happening, was approached after he, and he becomes a rock star, celebrated around the world. Um, that's him in New York getting a, you know, just he was just mobbed by people. People wanted to see who, as him with Charlie Chaplin. He would lecture in Paris. He was in Santa Barbara. He was all over. People were fascinated by him. And he really became very, very, very popular. And building on his popularity, someone approached him and said, would you be a spokesman for, for Zionism? Einstein had a very strange political viewpoint at this point. He was a deep pacifist. He hated war. He believed that there should be a governing international body that would regulate all military. And he really was a, a pacifist. And he, he didn't like politics whatsoever. He was approached um, to, to you know, be a spokesman for, for the Zionist cause. Surprisingly, he agreed. Why? Anti-Semitism was growing in Germany after the war. This would be one of the Einstein's major, major enemies. This is a, the, the 1905 Nobel Prize winner, Philip Lennard, who would go on the net for the rest of his life. He would end up being the Nazi chief scientist. You know, he went on a mission to discredit Einstein for the rest of his life. Um, Einstein, he was later approached by Chaim Weizmann, that's, that's Einstein with Weizmann, to go to New York, and that's in the next picture, to go in New York on a fundraising tour for the Zionist cause. Einstein's first trip to, to New York City, to the United States, was actually a fundraiser for the World Zionist Organization. He was, it was a PR success. People came out in throngs to see him. It was a fundraising disaster. Didn't raise any money. Einstein received the Nobel Prize. That's him with Churchill. Einstein would receive the prize, uh, the Nobel Prize in 1922, which is many years later. Now, mind you, he had just revolutionized the world of science. What took so long? The answer is two things. People wanted to go ahead. One thing they said is that the Nobel Prize is really for uh, inventions or real discoveries. Einstein just came up with theories. That's what they said. The real answer is guys like Philip Lennard, anti-Semites, didn't want Einstein getting the pro getting the project. Einstein therefore didn't he wasn't even there to, to accept his his Nobel. He was actually heading to Jerusalem. He was on his one trip to Israel to the Holy Land while he was you know it was a trip to Asia and then to Israel when he was given the, the Nobel Prize. The remainder of his scientific life, Einstein would basically this he, although he contributed vastly to the uh, to the world of science, he spent the next the rest of his life really doing two things. Fighting quantum physics, which he was the one who created, but he was spooked out by it. He would spend the rest of his life kind of trying to disprove it. And building on his general theory of relativity, which really unified gravitation and acceleration, the one major part of physics that it didn't speak to was electromagnetism. And Einstein would spend the rest of his life trying to come up with a unified theory to unify electricity, magnetism with acceleration and gravity, and he'd be unsuccessful, he would die with the equations in his hand. 
Uh, he actually would die also with a speech um, you know, on his bed where equations for his unified field theory, which didn't, wasn't able to prove and still doesn't exist. And he also died in his hands. On his, on his desk was a speech he was going to give to the, to the Zionist uh, Congress. Interesting. Um, he would write, interestingly, as he got a little older, he got a lot more. Oh, just a great story. As he goes and he goes to the United States and in general theory, everyone wants him to go ahead and try to explain general theory of relativity like quickly. And he's like, it's impossible. And it became like a thing to ask people, do you understand Einstein's theory of relativity? It was like a thing. You'd ask people to get asked, do you understand Einstein's theory? So after, you know, traveling to the United States, they asked Weissman, do you understand, you know, do you, did Einstein explain general theory of relativity? He said the most amazing thing he says, he said, during our crossing, Einstein explained the theory to me every day. And by the time I arrived, I am fully convinced that he really understands it. <laughs> um, as I mentioned, he hated, he, he would fight against quantum, quantum mechanics and he would write, he said, to punish me for my contempt for authority, fate has made me an authority myself. He eventually would move to the United States. He was offered a job in Princeton. He would move to the United States in 1932 as he saw Germany falling apart. He, leave, he left a month before Hitler came to power. That's him uh, swearing, uh, you know, becoming a citizen. Um, that's his house in Princeton. Einstein was a charming person. Two stories are absolutely true. As he's in Princeton, um, and at this time, he's, he's an absolute celebrity. Um, an eight-year-old girl knocks on his door one day with a plate of homemade fudge and asks Einstein if, she, if he can help her with her homework, with her math homework. So, uh, and he did. And she would come back re regularly to help with it. And he would go and help with her. Well, then she used to come back regularly. And then she would bring her friends to help. Uh, Einstein would help these little girls on their math, math homework. And, uh, and, and but Einstein was a little bit of an absent-minded type of guy. At one point, he offered them lunch. So they said, sure. So he went ahead and he opened a couple of, can of cans of beans with his can opener, stuck them on the stove, heated them up, gave them spoons, said, here's lunch. And uh, when her parents found out that like <laughs> this little girl is having Einstein, you know, you know, tutor her in math, he was like, I think he, what was his line? He said, he said, I learned as much from her as she did from me. <laughs> um, he was an absent-minded person. He was notorious for leaving things all over the place. The day he got married, he like he left the keys to his apartment. He left them at the. He had to knock on the landlord's door to get into to get into his own apartment. Story goes, true story. One day, someone called the the Princeton, the institute that he was at, and asked to speak to a particular dean. The receptionist said the dean wasn't available. The caller then hesitatingly asked for Albert Einstein's address. The receptionist said that we can't give out that address. 112 Mercer Street. We can't give out the address. Um, in a whisper, the caller said, please don't tell anyone. I'm Dr. Einstein. And I forgot where I live. It's a true story. He rarely combed his hair. He wore baggy clothing and he hated wearing socks. Elsa would die in 1936. It devastated him. Hans, it's very actually tragic. His younger son, Edward, uh, suffered from schizophrenia and would his his previous wife, uh, 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 marriage took care of him. Um, he died in 1960-something or other. In 1939, that's him in, in the United States. That's him with, that's Hans Albert, his son. That's him in Caltech. In 1939, he was approached by Leo uh, Szilard, um, who approaches him, basically said, 
that, you know, at, you know, based on Einstein's E equals MC squared uh, theory, that it would be able to, E equals MC squared is an amazing theory. Think about it for a second. E equals MC squared, which is a mathematical de derivation of his special theory of relativity. It's E, this energy, and mass, M, have an equivalence. That we like to think there's something called energy and there's something called mass in the universe. The truth is mass equals energy and energy equals mass, equals mass with some calculations. Energy equals mass, M. C stands for the speed of light. The speed of light is a very big number, 186,000 miles a second. C squared, the speed of light squared, is an unfathomably large number. Energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, which means in a single rate, I think the, the, Isaacson says uh, an equivalent way of looking at it, there's enough energy in a single raisin to electrify New York City for an entire day. There's a tremendous amount of energy. And Szilard points out, pointed out that there would be ways taking building on that if you can harness the power of that energy and you can somehow dislodge the energy that's contained inside atoms. Now, atoms don't like giving up that energy. But if you have unstable atoms, such as enriched plutonium, you can go ahead and create a tremendous bond. Einstein understood this and immediately wrote a letter um, explaining the danger of this idea. And he sent this letter to FDR. He wrote this letter for FDR so that they would understand that the ramifications of relativity were such that tremendously powerful weapons could be built. Strangely, Einstein tried to figure out how do we get this letter to FDR? He had this great idea. There was this big celebrity in the United States. Maybe give him a call, give, explain the letter. Maybe this celebrity had access to FDR. Who is that celebrity? Charles Lindbergh, of all people, who is a notorious anti-Semite. Einstein just didn't know it. It's a bizarre story. But eventually, the letter would get to Einstein, and um, uh, it would get to FDR. And FDR did take it very seriously. And based on that letter, the Manhattan Project was, was started. Einstein had nothing to do with the, the Manhattan Project. Why? Two reasons. Einstein was a pacifist. He didn't like this kind of stuff. He wasn't interested in politics. He wasn't inter interested in the military, number one. Number two, at this time, because of Einstein's strange, you know, his pacifistic yeah. tendencies, the FBI had begun, J. Edgar Hoover had begun a large file on Einstein, and he would not have gotten the clearances. He was suspected, and this is the era of the early, you know, the early eras of McCarthyism, Einstein would not have gotten the clearances um, for that. Einstein's Zionism grew. He tried raising, uh, raising a lot of money for Hebrew University. And indeed, after Weizmann, the story is true. We were talking about it. After Weizmann, was, after Weizmann died, Ben-Gurion, who's him with Oppenheimer, that's him with David Ben-Gurion, did offer him uh, the, the presidency of Israel. And was deeply relieved when Einstein turned it down because it wouldn't have been a good idea, but he sort of had to because Einstein was so popular. It would have been a great idea. Einstein dies on April 18th, 1955. As I mentioned, there were on his bedside were 12 pages of equations trying to get him closer to a unified field theory. Also, it was the beginning of a speech he was to deliver at the Israel Independence Day that said as follows, today I speak to you not as an American, not as a Jew, but as a human, but as a human being. Einstein's theories changed the world. And I only have a few minutes left. I just want to, I've always found his, his theories to be so remarkable. Can I get a volunteer here for a second? Any volunteer? 
Yehuda, you'll be our volunteer. I'm going to explain to you quantum, quantum mechanics real quick. Everyone ready? For those who are explanatory service, we did this a couple of weeks ago. If I'm over here and my good friend Yehuda is over there, and I want to get something from me to him, there are two ways for me to do that. Walk it over. One way is for me to go ahead and throw it. That's what's called a particle emission. If this was a particle, I could shoot this particle towards Yehuda. The other thing that I can do is, right? If I want to send information to you, to Yehuda over here, did you feel that? I can create a wave, right? I didn't, nothing from me went to him, but there was no particle that went from me to Yehuda. Rather, what I did was I created a wave disturbance in this handy dandy little exercise band. And that wave disturbance gets felt. Light, thank you, a big round of applause to our, thank you very much. You'll get a toaster oven for your, you know, as a consolation prize. There were, there were, the big theory, the big debate was, what is light? What is light? On the one hand, is light a particle? Or on the other hand, is light a wave? The problem was, is that the data indicates both. The data and experiments will show that it's both. And that was indeed Einstein's first paper, photoelectric effect. So he basically argued that light is both a particle and a wave. And that was a remarkable breakthrough. And all of quantum mechanics, which is one of the most precise forms of science today, rests on the idea of light being both a particle and a wave. The problem with that was, is that it created, built on that, all sorts of weird things. And deeper and deeper and more strange and bizarre and spooky forms of science would be built off of that, including Heidenberg's uncertainty principle, which all of us are deeply, intimately familiar with, right? I don't understand it one bit. But what essentially what it says is, is that an electron cannot be identified. There's an inherent randomness. You cannot predict where an electron will possibly be because light is both a, is both a wave and a particle. You cannot predict, you cannot see, you cannot determine, even if you know every piece of information in the world, you can't go ahead and understand where an electron is because light is both a particle and a wave. Which one is it? Both. Einstein would be asked later on in his life regularly, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Einstein would say, I'm not an atheist. Uh, the problem involved is too vast for our limited minds. Einstein deeply believed in God. He believed in a God of creation, deeply, deeply. Einstein, however, did not believe in a God of history. God did not, Einstein did not believe that God was involved in the affairs of mankind. The reason why he, did, why he believed that is because he was a strict determinalist. Einstein felt that there's no way God can intervene. There's, yeah, Einstein also didn't believe that we have free will. Does mankind have Bechira Kavshis? Do we have free will? It's impossible. If you know all the laws of nature, all the laws and all the positions of every piece of mass and all the energy in the world, if you had every piece of data, we should be able to predict the history of mankind, the history of the universe from the gracious Bar Elohim, God created the you know, heavens and the earth till the end of days. And Einstein believed, yes, there was a God of creation, but he couldn't see that there was a God of history because there's no room for a God of history. 
I find it fascinating, interesting thing. One of the great questions in theology, Rambam deals with this and many, many others, is how do we reconcile? We believe in Judaism, 13 principles of faith, that God knows everything. God, there's no, God is past, present, and future. God knows everything. Yet, Rambam tells us and asserts, fundamental to Judaism is the Chirachavshis, free will. I could choose what's right and I could avoid what's wrong. And no one, God does not pre-program me to be righteous. And everyone says, says Rambam, you can be as pious as a Moses. And everyone can be you could be a villain as evil as Jeroboam, as Yeravam ben Nevat, the great villains of Jewish history. Asks Rambam, how can those two postulates coexist? How can God be all-knowing and I have Bechira, have free will? The two things run Contrary to one another. You know what Rambam says? Many scholars have tried answering it. Rambam tells us such a fundamental, I've always found it to be such a fundamental idea. This is who said that mankind knows the answer to that question? He says they are incompatible. But that doesn't mean they're not true. That just means that man's mind is not advanced and sophisticated enough to reconcile both of them. This was exactly the point that Einstein struggled with, both in his religion and with quantum physics, I would argue. Just as he was absolutely wrong in quantum physics, quantum physics argues that light is both a wave and both and a particle. It is both that is irreconcilable, yet it is true. And it is of the most, probably scientifically today, it is the most verified and absolutely universally agreed on notion is quantum mechanics is real. And it absolutely is true. How can God both know the future and know everything, and I'm also yet a Baal Bechira, I have free will? They both exist. Can they both be true? Yes. Are they contradictory? Yes. Who said that that's a problem? Who said that we have the ability to grasp how those irreconcilable things can coexist? Just because our limited understanding sees them as irreconcilable, does not make them incorrect and incompatible. It's a powerful idea. The hour is late, but I want to end with one last idea. I didn't get to go through special relativity. Again, I said, I'm not a physicist. I'm not here to give you lectures on, 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 on special relativity. But I want to tell you one last story. I've shared this. I actually shared this at my father's eulogy. Not to be morbid. It was one of the most amazing lessons that I am so grateful that my dad taught me. About five years ago, I was reading this book. This book. And I got up to the section of general relativity. And, you know, special relativity, if you guys didn't understand it, it's fine. You could Google it, watch a YouTube video. It's actually not too complicated. Special relativity, which says that space and time are relative to one another, you can figure, you actually can figure it out. If you get a good YouTube video, it, it makes sense. I think I have a layman's understanding. General relativity is, I mean, you saw that equation. What in the world is that? But, Einstein has his theory of general relativity, which is a new theory of gravitation. It rejected Newtonian physics. Newton had his apples falling on his head. Einstein had his men falling in elevators. But they are fundamentally two different ways of explaining gravitation. And I will never forget the story. I remember exactly where I was and when it was. It was I was building my sukkah. I'll never, I just... You know, I was building my sukkah and I had my dad and my earphone. I'm speaking to my dad, who was a brilliant physicist. <laughs> I love telling the story. I said, Abba, 
I said, I'm reading this book about Einstein and general relativity. I said, Abba, can you explain general relativity to me in like 60 seconds? My dad, he turns to me, says on the phone, he says, no, hold do you understand that Albert Einstein was one of the most brilliant men to ever live? I said, yeah. He said, he says, Malcolm, do you understand that it took Einstein years to come up with general relativity? I said, yeah. He says, Malcolm, you want me to explain general relativity to you in 60 seconds? I said, yeah. Standing on one foot. And, and so we had a chuckle. My dad explained it to me. He gave me, you know, my, I, I, I know the words of it. I obviously don't understand it. Certainly don't understand any of the math. But I can understand, yes, it's a principle that basically argues there are four dimensions to the universe, even though we only perceive three, but there actually is a fourth one. And it's in that fourth dimension, acceleration and gravity, what that fourth, gen what that fourth dimension is, it's a curvature. It's a bending. You know, if you ever see those pictures of like earth on like, it looks almost like a, like a trampoline and a bowling ball, or sometimes it's earth on the, on the trampoline and it bends the, the the trampoline and you put a ball like another ball on that trampoline and it will follow the curvature of that trampoline. That's what general relativity is. And that trampoline, that, that curvature is that fourth in, you know, dimension. Fine. Thank you, Abba. I great. Very helpful. I said, Abba, can I ask you one more question? You said, sure. I said, Newton had his understanding of gravitation. He had his mechanics, his three laws, he had his mathematics. Einstein had his approach. He had his approach to general relativity, and he had his math. The machlokas, the disagreement, Newton and Einstein. I said, Abba, I, wanna, I don't understand. They're arguing about, you know, how do we describe gravitation? I said, fundamentally, Abba, why does mass attract mass? Why does gravity happen? We can understand, right? It's a very, I thought it was, I like to pat myself on the back. I thought it was a very thought-provoking question. I said, Abba, why does gravity happen? They're just arguing about the mathematical formulas to understand gravitation. They're arguing over the what. But what, first, let's understand why is it happening. If we understand the why, then we'll be able to figure out who was right. Was Newton right or was Einstein right? Right? Is that a good question? I thought it was a very thought like it. Very proud of myself. Like they're arguing about the math, but why is it happening in the first place? Why does math attract? Why does mass attract mass? My dad taught me a lesson. At that moment, it was one of the most profound, simple yet deep lessons that changed my life, and I hope it will change yours. My dad told me, he "says Nachum, I want you to understand something," and it's a very fundamental idea. He said. We can measure gravitation with tremendous precision. He said general relativity is one of the most magical and beautiful theories and formulas, and it explains the entire cosmos. From the most subatomic particles to black holes to galaxies suspended in the heavens. It is a remarkably precise theory, and it's, it's nothing short of a miracle. By the way, Newtonian physics, although it's incorrect, actually Einstein is correct, but Newtonian Einstein never rejected Newtonian. Newtonian physics is still a very good way of looking at gravitation. Although it's incorrect, general relativity doesn't really come up in our daily lives. We build airplanes, airplane, we build skyscrapers, bridges, and airplanes using the calculations of Newtonian physics. 
Yes, it's incorrect, but it gets the job done because the effects of the curvature of space-time are things we only like really deal with when we're dealing with galaxies, you know, light years away. And general relativity is brilliant. Newton was brilliant. And we can measure it, predict it, calculate it with tremendous precision. But he said, Nahum, I want you to understand something and never forget it. Why does mass attract mass? Why is it happening? There isn't a scientist in the world that can even begin to answer that question. That is not a scientific question. Why is it happening? Because God made it happen. General relativity is a, measure, is a measurement of what is happening. Fundamentally, why is it happening? There isn't even the beginning of a theory as to why it happens. We just see it, and we know it happens. There's a verse in Isaiah. Isaiah urges each and every one of us, raise your eyes to the heavens, to the galaxies, to the black holes, to the phenomena of the cosmos. And perceive. I can explain general relativity. I can measure galaxies. Why is it happening? Me bara Ela asks Isaiah, who created all of that? Where did that come from? My dad was a deeply, deeply religious man. My dad was a brilliant physicist. PhD, Columbia, he actually understood that calculation on that, on that point. He knew general relativity very well. We sometimes people feel that you look at science and you look at physics and you look at general relativity. It used to be back in the good old days, as an example, and I'm sorry, we're a little late. We'll get you out of here in a minute. It used to be in the good old days. Couldn't explain lightning. Why is lightning happening? And what was the old answer? God's wrath, God's anger. Comes along Franklin, he's flying a kite, gets zapped, he has a theory, it's electricity. And you can measure it, you can predict it, and you can calculate it. It has to do with negative charges and positive charges and the clouds, and you can predict it, measure it, and calculate it. And you no longer need to say it's God who created, you know, you know why, why lightning is happening? It's God. No, it's not. It's an electric charge. And people use often science and physics and things like that, once we can explain it and we can measure it, calculate it, and predict it, and we use it as a highway exit away from God. Because I used to be, I don't know what this thing is. I have to say it's God and that's it. But now that I can measure it and explain it and predict it, I don't need God anymore. And Isaiah is telling us that's so wrong. Of course, science makes sense. Science is measurable. Of course, lightning has, has some scientific property. And why, and you know, mass attracting mass can be calculated, predicted, and measured with precise detail. You want to see what God, where God is, where is there room for God? Says Isaiah, raise your eyes to the heaven, perceive me, Why is it happening? I can measure it. I can tell you lightning is electricity. That's great. Why does there why are there light? Why is electricity happening when there's a positive charge and a negative charge? Where did that come from? We don't even have the beginning of an answer to that question. And that's where God exists. You don't need to explain all the phenomena around us. You don't need to go ahead and say, oh, I don't know what it is. It's God. Science 
proves God. My dad, as I mentioned, was a deeply religious man. And it was through science, through seeing the universe around us, that's where he saw God. And indeed, Kovos Havavos, great du- the duty, duties of the heart, great book, Jewish ethics and philosophy, based on that verse in Isaiah, he says, it's actually a religious imperative as a Jew. Look at the world around us. See the marvels of science, the genius of an Einstein. Don't ignore it, but dig deeper into it. Understand it and perceive it and see the beauty and the harmony, the symphony that is science. And ask yourself the question, raise your eyes towards the heavens, and see. Ask yourself, where did it come from? I want to thank you all for coming. Wish you all a good evening. If anyone has any questions, I'm here to stick around. I apologize. I went a couple minutes over. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Jewish History Podcast. As always, we'd really appreciate if you like and share this podcast, or even better, leave a comment. For more information, please visit us at www.lasvegascola.org.